You're about to hear the first episode of Pop, Race, and the 60s, a new Slate Academy featuring Jack Hamilton. This series is for Slate Plus members. To find out more, or to sign up for Slate Plus at a special discount rate, go to slate.com slash popacademy. That's slate.com slash popacademy. Hello, and welcome to Pop, Race, in the 1960s, a new Slate Academy podcast available exclusively to Slate Plus members. I'm your host, Jack Hamilton. Some of you may know me as Slate's pop critic, and I'm also an assistant professor of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia. In my more scholarly role, I've just published a book called Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination. The book takes on the question of how rock and roll music became white. In other words, how a music that at the beginning of the 1960s was seen and heard as something that both black and white artists did by the end of the decade, had come to be imagined as the nearly exclusive province of white performers. Maybe the best and most concise way to illustrate this shift is the case of Jimi Hendrix. When he died in 1970, many of Hendrix's obituaries remarked on the unusualness of a black man playing electric lead guitar. But only 10 years earlier, no one thought it unusual in the least when Chuck Berry was doing the same thing. The question of how and why this happened is especially fascinating, considering that the 1960s was a decade we often associate with racial fluidity in popular music. Just think about the crossover success of Motown Records or the interracialism of Southern R&B in places like Memphis and Muscle Shoals. There was also the civil rights conscience of the American folk revival and, of course, the groundbreaking blue-eyed soul of the British invasion. In so many ways, the musical imagination of the 1960s was anything but monochromatic, and yet our collective memory of the decade is often quite segregated. This podcast series will set out to grapple with this paradox. It will also give me a great excuse to sit down with some of the leading scholars of the music of this period, music that I really love and have felt privileged to spend so much time listening to, thinking about, writing about, and now talking about with my smart friends. Each episode offers a deep dive into two songs by different artists that, to my ears at least, can be heard as a sort of conversation with each other. Some of the songs are incredibly famous, others less so. But they all matter profoundly, not only to the times that made them, but also to the times we still live in today. And so in addition to talking about the songs themselves, my guests and I will consider some of the ways in which these songs connect with history and with the big issues of their own times, both musical and otherwise. In between episodes, you can read more about the artists and songs we're discussing on our show page. That's at slate.com slash popacademy. We also have a private Facebook page for Slate Academy listeners where we'll be continuing the conversation. You'll find that at facebook.com slash groups slash slatepop. The first episode of our series centers on two very, very famous songs. Bob Dylan's Blowin' in the Wind, released in 1963, and Sam Cooke's A Change is Gonna Come, released the following year. Dylan and Cooke are totemic figures of 1960s music. Dylan's probably more famous than Cooke, because Dylan's more famous than almost anyone, but in terms of his position in the history of American popular music, Cooke is nearly as important. In the late 1950s, Cooke became the first American singer to successfully cross over from the gospel world to the pop charts. In doing so, he essentially created the aesthetic and commercial blueprint for much of the genre that would come to be known as soul music. The two songs we're focusing on were written within about a year of each other. Blowing in the Wind is probably the most famous piece of music produced by the 1960s folk revival, and it vaulted Dylan into stardom. It was also part of the inspiration for A Change Is Gonna Come, which today is Sam Cooke's most famous song, even though it was never even released as a single during his lifetime and only reached number 31 on the Billboard pop charts once it was. My guest today is Barry Shank, professor of comparative studies at The Ohio State University. I'm really excited to have Barry here because he's part of a rather exclusive club of people who've written extensively about both Dylan and Cooke. I'll admit that I am another member of this club. He's also the author most recently of a great book called The Political Force of Musical Beauty, which was published by Duke University Press in 2014. Uh, This book also makes him a pretty perfect guest for this particular episode because it's impossible to talk about either one of these songs without talking about politics. Barry, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. 
Yeah, so I thought that we could start off by just, uh, I mean, Blowing in the Wind, again, is the the song that slightly predates A Change is Going to Come. Again, one of the most famous pieces of music of Bob Dylan's career, certainly. Um, Probably one of the most famous pieces of music of of this decade. Uh, And I think it's a song that's so well-known that um, sometimes we don't actually really take the time to really sit with it and listen to it. So I thought we could start by just listening to uh, Bob Dylan's recording of, of Blown in the Wind, which is from 1963, the first track on his uh, second album for Columbia Records, The Freewheel and Bob Dylan. And this is Blown in the Wind. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Okay, so Blowing in the Wind, I mean, this is a song that I will admit, like, I grew up in a household that I, I should say right off the bat that, um, as anyone who's met me knows, I was actually not born in 1963. <laughs> um, but uh, I, this is a song that is, it's, it's one of these songs that I grew up knowing. I, I can't really remember a time in my life when I didn't know Blowing in the Wind. And I did not grow up in a household that was a Dylan household. I, in fact, my parents own no Dylan records. My mom to this day complains that he can't sing. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but this is a song, you know, it's like it, it just is in it's in the air. Like it has this timelessness to it. Um, so I wanted to just ask for, for starters, I mean, what in your ears and like in your opinion makes this song so great well one of the things that i think is really important about the song is its directness and its um simplicity and its simplicity is uh is actually kind of a mask i think dylan's famous for wearing masks and and hiding behind surfaces all the time so it has this really direct and what seems to be clear and obvious surface but it also is is really compelling in the fact that when you think about it, when you're listening to it, what is it that he's saying? What is it? What are these answers that that seem to be blowing in the wind? These questions that he's asking um, actually are complicated questions. You know, they're questions that uh, by saying you know it's just blowing in the winds makes it sound like well you could if you just pay attention you can hear it. But it mm-hmm. also seems like you know if it's blowing in the wind and we haven't heard it yet, why not? You know, so there's that kind of double edge to the song that makes it both. Um, a kind of surprisingly reassuring civil rights anthem and also a deeply challenging civil rights anthem at the same time. Yeah, I think that that's really true. And it's it's interesting thinking about the nature of these questions. I mean, the opening question, probably the most famous line yeah, of the song, really. it's not its chorus, but uh, how many roads must a man walk down before right. you call him a man? And right. there's, there's just so much that seems to be submerged in that question. You know, you can hear it in one angle as being very, very much about civil rights and the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, the, the iconography of I'm right. a man. Absolutely. But yeah. but also, yeah, the, the roads walking down, you know, right. this aspect of sort of, you know, is this about experience? This weirdly unanswerable question. Yeah, and, and you know the other thing that I think is true about that period is um, anybody who was pretending to be an intellectual, as Dylan clearly was, um, was influenced <laughs> by existentialism, right? Mm-hmm. And so this notion of you know what does it take to be? What does it mean to be you know a, a, an active subject in in society? What does it mean to be a man? And how many roads do you have to walk down when you don't know where those roads are going before you are actually someone? You know, it was was a uh, pretty uh, common way of, of asking about the meaning of life in the period as well. So there's that too. Yeah, that actually leads to something else that I wanted to talk about. I mean, you know, this is really from a period of, of Dylan's career. This is very early Dylan. I mean, he wrote this song when he was 20, yeah. uh, which is stunning. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, even just the voice, you know, you're like, how right. is it? I think right. he was 21 when he recorded it, but, you know, he sounds like this, you know, aged. He sounds so uh, old. I don't know how so he did old. that, you know? I mean, but that's like the way his voice falls off at the end of each phrase, you know? How many rules must me and what day? You know, that thing, right? <laughs> Isn't how many deaths will it take 
tell he knows that too many people have died. And it sounds almost defeated. And, and yet the song does, as a, as a whole, doesn't sound defeated. The song as a whole sounds like, you know, there's, a, there's an inevitability to these problems being solved. And I think that's part of the comforting aspect of why it was such a hit, um, especially when Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded it. It was such a hit because there was an aspect to it that made it seem as though it's inevitable that this is going to get better. It's going to happen. Um, and, and, yet, and yet his voice, when he sings, there's that almost, it sounds, when you pay attention just to the, the uh, modulation of the melody, it sounds kind of defeated, it's, you know, because the way every phrase, he just drops off at the end, almost as though he's distancing himself from the possibility that he might be delivering an optimistic message. Definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. And you talk about the, the Peter, Paul and Mary version. Something that has sort of been forgotten is that that was the version in 1963 that was the hit. Like that song, I think, hit number two on the pop charts in it 1963. Huge. It was huge. And Dylan's version, yeah, Dylan's version has that sort of world weariness that you can hear the influence of, you know, the old blues records he was into. The right. You know, obviously the Woody yeah. Guthrie influence yeah. is tremendous. Definitely. Talking about the the Peter, Paul, and Mary version, let's take a few moments and listen to that recording, which, again, in 1963 would have been uh, the one that you would have been most likely hearing on the radio, you know, at parties. This was the hit version. How many roads must a man walk down before they call him a man? How many must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer So that's yeah. a really drastically different. It's drastically <laughs> different. It's a, yeah, <laughs> I mean that's. I mean that in many ways that's a classic um, folk uh, revival recording hit because what it does is it really um, makes it makes clear what the commercialization of folk music did. Um, those voices are very clear. They're very pretty. Mary Travers' little tiny tremolo is perfectly controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, the harmonies that come in, the counter melodies that are sung by the male voices, all of it, and especially the way they hold the notes and they even out the rhythms. Now, this is how uh, Dylan's training as a his self training as a, a listener to blues singers and to country music singers. Dylan's really comfortable with, with singing off the beat a little bit. Peter, Paul, mm-hmm. and Mary are singing right on the beat, and they are holding out the notes of those key last lines, those key last syllables that increase the sense of inevitability. Before he can see the sky. That's, I think, why the Peter, Paul, and Mary version was such a huge hit at this time. It really did make it seem like um, what was going to happen was going to be an, uh, a progressive development in race relations in the United States. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there's something musically that's happening in that version that conveys optimism. There's yeah. something that's it, there's there's a real conventional beauty to right. it that is very it's something so warm and inviting and especially the way that bait that the second melody comes in where it's just the answer my friend is blow it in the wind which is not <laughs> all the way that Dylan sang it it's not at all the way that Dylan sang it so what they've done is they've made it much not only much prettier in a conventional sense but also the way those different voices blend together make it sound like yes there's a coming together that's happening one of the things that I think with this song as well is that, you know, talking about the melody, Dylan is someone who obviously gets hugely celebrated for, for his lyrics. I really think Dylan is one of the more underrated melodists in uh-huh. popular music. I mean, there are so yeah. many, particularly in this period, Freewheel and Bob Dylan, there are just so many beautiful melodies on that record. I mean, my favorite song on that on that album is probably Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Which I knew is you a, were going to say that because that's yeah. a beautiful, great melody. It's so good. It's just good. gorgeous. It is. Yeah, and yeah. It's, you know, that's another song that was covered by a lot of people in uh-huh. this period. Yeah. Um, something that is 
maybe less well known about the origins of Blowing in the Wind is that (laughs) this is not a melody that Dylan himself (laughs) actually really wrote. Uh Um, It's lifted from a 19th century anti-slavery song called No More Auction Block. Right. um, Or sometimes titled Many Thousands Gone, sometimes titled No More Auction Block for Me. And... We know that Dylan knew this song because there is a recording that exists of him uh, performing it at the Gaslight in Greenwich Village in 1962. And I thought we could listen to just a little snippet of, of that recording. clearly hear uh you know the seeds of blowing in the wind in that in that melody and that that it's worth i think just dwelling a little bit on that that itself is a very very striking performance of of that song and this is a lot again a live recording sort of picturing dylan in this uh sort of small coffee house uh setting if you listen closely you can actually hear glasses clinking in the background um but yeah what are the what are the influences and the sort of musical histories that you hear in Blowing in the Wind, and the, what, what are sort of some of its constituent parts? Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the version, the live version that you played, is that you can hear the guitar play the, the second half of the melody, mm-hmm. even though Dylan doesn't sing that. So the second half of the melody for Blowing in the Wind is there in his version of No More Auction Block. So, you know, you can think that he's already working towards what's going to be Blowing in the Wind when he's performing that version of Auction Block. But I think that there's a um, No More Auction Block being an anti-slavery song, being part of a long tradition of anti-slavery songs um, is not uh, irrelevant to the the way that that melody became the melody that he wanted to use for Blowing in the Wind. I think that there's a way in which um, the music and the lyrics form together the concept of the song um, so that there's, you know, a lot of uh, sort of spirituals follow the same kind of pattern. You'll notice that there's the line that goes up you know, da 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 da, and then the, and then the line that comes out, da 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 da. Right, that that mm-hmm. pairing is is a common sort of melodic uh, pattern. You go up in a sense towards you know a striving, and then come back down in recognition of a kind of achievement. And I think, or or and, you know, maybe achievement's too strong a word, but at least you know an attempt, a successful attempt. And that kind of striving is part of what is common to a lot of folk songs, uh, a lot of folk struggles songs, struggles of a community. And I think that, you know, you don't, it's not like Dylan sitting there thinking, calculating, well, this is what I'm going to be achieving with that. It's the way that sounds. It feels like the right way for the song to go. It feels like a right way for the melody to go. And I think that that's um, part of the tradition of the music making that he was playing into and learning from as he was developing some of those early songs. Another thing I think is that yeah, it's very singable. You know, there's yeah, something about it that, right. that it yeah. lodges right. in. There's something so accessible about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, yeah, coming out of a tradition that, that was very rooted in community. Right. Something right. else that's interesting to me about Blowing in the Wind is that it also manages to evoke, even though it's a secular piece of music, through its <laughs> language and imagery, really yeah. does contain yeah. these sort of undertones, if not overtones of of the sort of sacred. I'm, you know, how many years can a mountain exist before right. it's washed the sea? Right. right. How many right. times must a man right. look up before he can see the sky? Like these right. sound, these are things that right. there's something very there's a there's sort of a secular religiosity going yeah, on. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an important point to make. I mean, one of the things that we think about when we think about existentialism, it seems like a very secular kind of philosophy, but there was a strong uh, Christian existentialism that was uh, that was part of that tradition. But the really the more important and direct influence is the influence that's that place where gospel gave rise to a kind of community building, uh, social movement music that was already present in a lot of a lot of black music 
music, a lot of black music that predates the civil rights era, um, which was not directly political, not overtly political. Angela Davis talks about this. Lots of other scholars talk about this. But that carried a kind of politics in the way it um, uh, advocated for the values, the specific values of the community and particularly the black community at the time. That's a great point. And that actually is a a perfect place to transition uh, into our second artist that we'll be discussing today. And we will come back and discuss Dylan more later in the episode. Uh, But this seems like, yeah, a great opportunity to move to talking about Sam Cooke and and his iconic composition, A Change Is Gonna Come, which is certainly a song that marshals a lot of the energies of African-American religious music and draws from Cooke's own background as a gospel singer in creating uh, really one of the more famous pieces of, of protest pop music uh, in American history, I would say. Before we get to talking about a change that's going to come specifically, I thought I would give a little background on Sam Cooke's own professional journey. Uh, Sam Cooke started his career as a gospel star, as I mentioned before, um, and not just any gospel star. He was the lead singer in the Soul Stirrers, who were one of the most successful gospel groups of the 1950s. And I thought we could listen to a little bit of a recording of Sam Cooke in full gospel mode. And this is uh, Sam Cooke performing the standard called Were You There?, um, the song is also sometimes referred to as Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Uh, and this is Sam Cooke with The Soul Stirrers. Man was going to Jerusalem He met two strangers along the way They were talking all So throughout the 1950s, Sam Cooke was a massively successful gospel star, as you can hear in that recording, just you know, incredible amounts of uh, you know, vocal talent, charisma, uh, just an extraordinary singer. Um, and then later in the decade, uh, he began having ambitions of crossing over to becoming a pop star, which really no major gospel star had ever done. Uh, and in the late 1950s, Sam Cooke successfully makes this transition, which is a just a groundbreaking move in terms of the history of American music. And the song that does it for him is the very famous uh, hit single, You Send Me, which went to the, the top of the pop charts in 1958. And this is You Send Me, and you can hear in this recording just how different it is than uh, the recordings Sam Cooke was making with the Soul Stirrers uh, just, you know, a few years earlier. To marry you and take you home I know, I know, I know You send me So throughout the late 1950s and into the early 1960s, Sam Cooke was a really major pop star um, and, you know, was making these uh, very famous, still recordings that are very famous, uh, Wonderful World, um, Only 16, uh, Chain Gang, Twist uh, in the Night Cupid, Away. Twist in the Night Away. Yeah, just, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of, and he was writing these songs himself, Um and as the 60s are progressing, he's becoming increasingly attuned to the civil rights movement. And in 1963, hears Blowing in the Wind and partly inspired by it, partly inspired by, by other things as well, including the, the March on Washington from uh, summer of 1963 uh, and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. He, Sam Cooke, in late 1963, in winter, according to uh, his biographer Peter Goralnik, starts working on this composition, which will become uh, A Change Is Gonna Come, which he releases in 1964, initially as an album track on his RCA album, Ain't That Good News. And I thought we could just right now listen to A Change Is Gonna Come, which is today, in, in 2016, I would say probably Sam Cooke's most famous composition. Like the river I've been running 
It's a perfect recording. It's just perfect. <laughs> it absolutely is. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it never fails to move. And it, yeah, it's a piece of music that I would not hesitate to just refer to as a masterpiece, yeah. <laughs> uh, full stop. And one of the things that's interesting about A Change Is Gonna Come, and obviously uh, somewhat tragic, very tragic, is that this song uh, is actually not released as a single until shortly after Sam Cooke's death, which yeah. Sam Cooke was murdered under circumstances that to this day remain somewhat mysterious uh, in late 1964, December 1964. So he never really lives to hear A Change Is Gonna Come become his really defining composition in this landmark moment in the relationship between pop music and the civil rights movement. Again, this was a song that did not become a huge hit at the time that it was finally released as a single, uh, but it certainly throughout the decade became increasingly iconic, was covered by a lot of artists. Uh, Otis Redding covered it, Aretha Franklin covered it, lots of other people as well. But so I wanted to start off again, like same question that I asked you when we started talking about Blowing in the Wind. You've written about this song um, quite a bit in your in your recent book, The Political Force of Musical Beauty. What makes this so great? As you as you said before, <laughs> it's perfect. Um, what makes it perfect? Well, there's a lot of things that are perfect about it. Um, <laughs> uh, so to start with, um, let's let's talk about the other major contributor to the song, Renee Hall, who arranged mm-hmm. the track and put together the strings and the horn parts and really um, create this uh, beautiful astonishing landscape against which uh, Cook's equally powerful voice can rise and fall um, and convey the, the direct message of the song. The, the elegance and the precision of those strings, the interaction of the strings and the French horn, um, are just. It's uh, Hall says that it was the thing, it was a song he wanted to be the best song he ever worked on, and and mm-hmm. I know of nothing that compares to it. Uh, it really creates that simultaneous sense of flowing like a river flows. The song begins, "I was born by yep. the river." And so there is, again, this sense of time and sense of inevitability, and yes, the change is going to come, but at the same time, there's tension that builds in the lower parts of the strings, and especially in that part in the bridge, you know, that dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, which introduces a stutter, introduces a break into the progress that you think is going to happen. Then I go to my brother. And then, really, you know, just... That, that thing that Sam Cooke can do that no one else in the world has ever done, which is to let you know that he's reaching for a note and demonstrate that he can reach for it effortlessly. There's this ability that he has to sound like he's both doing something incredibly difficult and doing something that's incredibly difficult and just with the greatest ease and the greatest control and the most magnificent mastery of his voice that you can imagine. So what you get is, I think, a vocal expression, before you even start to hear the words, of the intensity of the desire to achieve a goal that's going to be difficult. And that's really what the song is about. And it's right there from the very opening of the song and it's carried out throughout. I mean, I could go on and on. I just want to say one more thing about his his vocal technique. If you listen to um, the three songs that we listen to, you hear in both in uh, Were You There and You Send Me and in Change Is Gonna Come, he doesn't need to sing right on the beat. He lets you know where the beat is by the way he inflects his voice as he dances around the beat with his voice. And he can let you know that his, his control of his pitch is so perfect that he can modulate, get right up perfectly, you know, the A440 
40 or whatever it is, and back away from it at the same time, completely under control and conveying meaning with every deviation, with every every movement away from and towards what we all know is the note that he intends. And it's that it's that ability to convey his intention and convey his disregard for uh, the need to actually uh, meet our expectations, to play with our expectations, his ability to be totally expressive with his time and his pitch that um, you hear throughout the three songs. It's different in You Send Me. It's different, again, in Change Is Gonna Come. But in each one of those examples, it's an extraordinary display of singing, vocal control, and ease at the same time. There's never any tension in Sam Cooke's voice. Yeah, it's really, it's true. I mean, there's tossing all scholarly objectivity aside for a second. <laughs> I, will say, I will say that I think personally Sam Cooke Sam Cook is my vote for the, the greatest singer who has ever lived. He's I think right he up is, there, that's for sure. It is, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, p- partly for just as you were talking about so eloquently, the versatility that he, yeah. that he possessed as a singer. Yeah. And he's still pretty young at the time. Yeah. I mean, he's in his early 30s when right. he makes this recording. And it's sort of it's this thing where you're like, there's nothing that this guy can't sing. You know, it's just this it's just this complete if the you know, if the voice is an instrument, it's just this virtuosic command. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so few other singers that I think are even in the category. Um, But another thing about Cook that I think is really interesting and probably a little underappreciated is what a great writer he was and what a great songwriter. And I mean, one of the things that I think about with this song is how beautifully it shifts between major and minor. Right. Um, And, you know, the sort of way the way that chords resolve uh, the way that he he sort of takes you on this journey again there's yeah as you mentioned the bridge which introduces this new sort of darkness to uh-huh. you know and part of that again is Renee Hall's right. uh, incredible arrangement yeah. Uh, but yeah just the way that this is you know a, a, a relatively simple and straightforward piece of music from a harmonic and compositional standpoint but it works so perfectly it's this perfect meld of what's happening musically versus what is happening lyrically right um and this is certainly something, the lyrics to this song are also very, very striking. You have that famous middle verse about, I go to the movies and right. I go downtown, you know, which yeah. is really hammering at the lived reality of segregation. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keeps telling me no. You know, Blown in the Wind is, as we talked about before, is like really conducted in these very kind of vague existential queries, whereas A Change is Going to Come does have this sort of real urgency to it and a real sense of this is a condition that, you know, is, you know, material. And this is racism and segregation are issues that aren't just, you know, they're obviously moral questions, but they're also, uh, you know, questions of, of just day-to-day life for people in, in 1963. Right, right. The, viol- the violence of segregation, which Cook had experienced in tours of the South for the couple of years um, just before he decided to write this song. So Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And there's, there's a real... There's something to me very powerful about the fact that you can have and and speaks to, you know, again, the the greatness of a work like A Change is going to come is how it, you know, manages to build upon blowing in the wind. But in this way that is completely that's so rich and unexpected and and not particularly direct, you know, it's not something that is. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound like it at no, all. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. It doesn't sound like it, and it doesn't want to sound like it because Cook's mm-hmm. really trying to do something I think very different from what Dylan was trying to do. Dylan was was trying to make a statement, you know, especially in that early period when he's still trying mm-hmm. to make clear who he is. Um, but Dylan's way of doing that, you know, he necessarily had to have a different position in relationship to the civil rights movement than Cook had. Right. You know, he, they, Dylan couldn't have the same relationship to it, um, and I think it's to Dylan's credit that he knew that. Right? He couldn't. Mm-hmm. He couldn't do. Absolutely. He couldn't uh, aspire to the same kind of uh, statement that Cook could do, and yet Cook is coming from an odd place too, because part of what who he was at that time, as you've already pointed out, is he was a pop star, right? Mm-hmm. In a way that Dylan was not a pop star and never really would become a pop star, um, but Cook was a pop star, and he was 
actually taking a pretty big risk in in re- writing, recording, and releasing this song because part of the way he's becoming a pop star is by smoothing off the gospel edges, um, right. by stripping away some of the clear signifiers of black community. Like you don't have those masculine voices in "You Send yep. Me," you know those background nope. voices. They're gone, right? Mm-hmm. You have yep. oohs and ahs in "You Send Me," and Cook's voice almost becomes an individualized representation. It's almost like the model of integration. You know, he's the model um, African American who can be allowed into the pop world. Mm-hmm. But when he says, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do something that's really um, speaks to the civil rights issues, and not just the civil rights movement itself, but to the reality of segregation in America today. Right? Yeah. He's taking a pretty big risk, and the fact that he can do it and be so like suave. So sophisticated, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so elegant, so cool at the same time is just astonishing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's why, it, to me, it's like the example of the political force of musical beauty. That song, mm-hmm. you know, Dylan could never get to that layer of beauty. He has a different kind of beauty. He has a different kind yeah. of rawness, and it's, it's an entirely different thing. But what Cook did was take all the skills, all the resources of a contemporary modern recording studio with a brilliant arranger, magnificent musicians, Earl Palmer playing the drums, mm-hmm. and, and his yep. voice, and it's just like, wow, you know, this, this, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to sort of return to Dylan and thinking about uh, blowing in the wind, but also just thinking about Dylan, you know, as a as a figure, Um, a change is going to come is, you know, sadly, really the end of Sam Cooke's career. I mean, this is again, it's released as a single a few days after he's murdered. Um, Blowing in the wind is really the beginning of of Dylan's career. I mean, very, very beginning in a lot of ways. (laughs) And, you know, Dylan's career, you know, obviously continues to this day. But as most people know, in 1965, Bob Dylan makes his kind of definitive break with the folk revival, first with the electric single Subterranean Homesick Blues, which becomes a hit in early 1965. And maybe we can listen to uh, a few seconds of that here. Maggie calls Fleetfoot, face full of black soot, talking at the heat, put plants in the bed, but the phone's tapped anyway. Maggie says the many say they must bust an early man, orders from the DA. Look out, kid, no matter what you did, but walk on your tiptoes, don't tie no bows. Better stay away from those that carry around a fire hose. Keep a clean nose, wash the clean clothes, you don't need a weatherman to know it. And then later in 1965, in summer of 1965, he releases Like a Rolling Stone, which will become one of the most significant recordings of his or really anyone else's career. <laughs> um, and in 1965, Like a Rolling Stone uh, hits number two on the pop charts. The only thing that keeps it out is Help by the Beatles, because you could not dislodge the Beatles from the top of the charts in 1965. Yeah. Um, but Like a Rolling Stone is a watershed moment in Dylan's career, and we can listen to a few snippets of that here. But you know you only used to get juiced in it Nobody's ever taught you how to live out on the street And now you're gonna have to get used to it You say you never compromise With a mystery tramp But now you realize He's not selling it so Like a Rolling Stone becomes a huge hit, and, and, and very importantly, it, it establishes Bob Dylan in 1965 suddenly as a rock star. Um, and really, I think you could argue, the rock star. Bob Dylan becomes a musician who changes the way that people start writing about and talking about rock and roll music. Right. Um, I, I mean, I would, I think it's pretty indisputable that I think more has been written about Bob Dylan than any popular musician of, of, of certainly of this era, but probably any era. Right. Um, but I wanted to ask, thinking about Blowing in the Wind, which is in retrospect, thinking of the totality of Bob Dylan's career really seems like an outlier piece of music. I mean, we think of Dylan's roots as a sort of protest singer, but that was always a very 
small part of what he did. You know, there was always an elements of Dylan that was doing other stuff. Um, he was never exclusively a protest singer, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. In his first album, you know, his first single is Mixed Up Confusion, which yeah, is an effort yeah. to kind of create a rock and roll song, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And we know now, looking back at his career and what he was listening to in his high school bands and all of that, that he was a rock and roller from the start. So that what that means is that when he's writing Blowing in the Wind, it's a deliberate set of choices. Um, sometimes it's said that he was just trying to fit in with the protest movement. He's just trying to fit in with the Greenwich Village um, folk revival scene. And certainly that's true. Um, but what he's also doing is he's learning the techniques. He's learning the skills. He's learning how to write those kinds of songs. Um, Times They Are Changing is another perfect example of that kind of song. Um, he's, he's able to do that. Um, soon after Times They Are Changing, he's already shifting away from wanting to write those kinds of songs and taking those skills and writing a more introspective a deeper sort of analysis, I think, of the contradictions and confusions of contemporary life, which is what I think Subterranean Homesick Blues is about. It's what I think Like a Rolling Stone is about. I think those songs capture what I think Dylan was among our first great popular music artists able to capture, which is uh, the sense of, of contradiction and conflict beneath the surface of any promise of, of betterment, any promise of progress. Progress, if it does come, is going to come out of a churning of, of contradictory struggles and uh, battles that we don't know what's really going to happen. I think this is, you know, this is why subterranean homesick blues is subterranean, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean the yeah. meaning of that song isn't just it's not a blues you know it's yeah. uh, you know and he's not homesick you know it's right, really right, yeah. it's subterranean you know and and one of the pieces that I wrote about Dylan I talk about how it's in line with the character the main character in Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison who starts oh, out yeah, being beneath connection. the surface of the streets right listening to what did I do to feel so black and blue yep. you know so I think that that's a lot it's that awareness of the complexity of American life and the contradictions of American life and the failures and the struggles that are part of any type of trying to imagine something better that he captures in Subterranean Homesick Blues and Like a Rolling Stone, which is, of course, a song about the failures of his audience, his main audience, the college-educated white hipsters, the white you know uh, people who had been listening to folk music who were just beginning to think that maybe the Beatles were okay, and Dylan is telling them you know like you have to get more serious about your life you know because if you're not going to get more serious you're going to get taken in by these images of these false heroes, and he's also acknowledging himself as having the potential to be a false hero and and you know like no more finger pointing songs he was not going to do any more yeah. finger pointing songs he's trying to do something that is more uh, directly from and to the core of the being of both himself and his audience as he understood it. And it's actually, you know, that's as scary and as risky a move that Dylan was making as Sam Cooke was making when he was trying to say, okay, I'm a pop star and I'm going to make something real about segregation and racial inequality. Dylan to say, you know, I've achieved some kind of, of success as a songwriter and as a, as a recording artist, and I'm going to take you deeper into the contradictions of your life um, was just about as big a risk, I think. Yeah, one of the things that, that jumps out to me listening to Subterranean Homesick Blues and, and like Rolling Stone and then speaks to the sort of relationship with Cook is that both Cook and Dylan have this incredible musical sponginess to yeah. them. You know, that it's just like <laughs> the amount of influences that they're working with, the amount and just sort of seamlessly and effortlessly like, you know, Subterranean Homesick Blues to me, and I mean, I'm not the first person to comment on this by any means, but, it, you know, the, the primary influence in that song to me is Chuck Berry. You yeah, know, it's, right. it's too yeah. much monkey business, right. which yeah. is, yeah. you know, it's like, like, it's basically a rewriting of right. too much monkey business, right. which is itself a great song. And it's like, in 1965, Chuck Berry was not someone who was, you know, being passed around in, in folk revival circles, necessarily. No, no. Um, and that the fact that that had stayed with him and, and listening to like a Rolling Stone. I mean, one of the things that jumps out to me about that recording, which is just just an extraordinary piece of music. But he is such a good singer by that point. Yeah, he is such yeah, a, yeah. you know, you talk yeah. about his command of time right. is just, I mean, yep. Dylan's sense of time yep. is otherworldly. And yep. just, and there's aspects to that vocal that actually kind of remind me of Sam Cooke. He does the, <laughs> he soars to those yes, high notes, yes, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, it's like, yeah, and yeah, it's such a strange yeah. comparison, but it's there. And yeah. you know that he's steeped in that tradition as well. Absolutely. Um, before we wrap up, one um, sort of final closing question that, that's obviously an enormous question, but Sam Cooke is an artist who, you know, I think his 
importance is very much understood and um, and agreed upon. At the same time, he's not actually someone that's had a tremendous amount written about him. There are really only two full-length books mm-hmm. about Sam Cooke, including the most recent being Peter Gralnick's just magisterial biography, yeah. Dream yeah. Boogie, which is, I think, one of the, the great music biographies. It's a great But one. I really think that one of the reasons that Cooke occupies a somewhat more... Um, I don't know, precarious space within certainly the the historiography of the 1960s, like just in terms of other R&B musicians of the era who've been written about extensively. I would say that there's there's much more that's been written about, you know, James Brown. There's more that's been written about Aretha Franklin. I would say that even someone, an artist like Nina Simone at this point oh, yeah, may have had at this point, sure. more written about mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And not to take anything away from those artists who are obviously massively important, but I think one of the things with Cook that makes people uncomfortable is actually the thing that also makes him so important, which is the crossover. And Absolutely. What, do you do with, yeah. what do you do with a song like You Send Me that does yeah. seem Seems so calculatedly designed to cross over and by crossover, let's face it, we're talking about crossover to a white audience right. and this sort of the what has been heard as, you know, sort of a removal of kind of conventionally black aesthetics from his yeah from his pop material and certainly a change is going to come is a, is a piece of music that I think has been heard by a lot of people as, as sort of rescuing some of those. And certainly it's political consciousness, I think is helps a lot with sort of, you know, creating that impression with people. And it, a change is going to come, I think of as the piece of Sam Cooke's catalog that everyone can agree on, you right. know, that we, everyone's right. like, this is great. Everyone yeah. knows it's a masterpiece, right. but it's interesting thinking about the difference between him and Dylan. Uh, and this is, I guess I'm sort of just a bit of a provocation, but, uh, <laughs> You know, Dylan is, you think about the moment of Like a Rolling Stone and the moment of Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is, you know, these two moments, which are really Dylan becoming becoming rock star. But he's also materially benefiting from having the number two single in the country. Sure. And it's interesting that, that Like a Rolling Stone is never framed as Dylan's sell out. Well, I mean, it was by the by the by the folk revival at the time. But now those are people who are, you know, we think of as on the wrong side right, of history, the people right. yelling Judas at him and right, stuff. Right. Um, whereas with Cook, yeah, it's interesting. And I guess this is really speaks to sort of like the issue of who's able to transcend identity, you know, in, yeah. in America, yeah. you know, and the fact that Sam Cook, we hear his his own transcendences as compromises in this yeah. way that I think is sort of unfair and doesn't doesn't really acknowledge the the genius behind him that 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 this was someone who was able to do so many different things. Yeah, I think one of the interesting comparisons then is with Barry Gordy, founder of Motown Records, yeah. because uh, Barry Gordy clearly set out to make you know hits for young America, by which he meant uh, you know white America as well as black America. So he's trying to do the same sort of thing. And after Cook has had the success, or you know. Know, at, certainly after Cook had his initial success. So there's been a model already for how to do this. And Gordy picks up on that model and Gordy does, you know, create an assembly line of highly polished musicians, highly polished singers, highly polished uh, performing acts. And yet uh, Motown is applauded as, uh, you know, at the time they were, you know, it was really easy to say, well, Stax is the real thing and Motown's right, not yeah. the real thing, right? That whole thing. But I think since then, you know, it's easier to talk about Gordy and easier to talk about the achievements of Motown and to hear the direct line to um, the sort of Southern soul tradition in, in players like James Jamerson and Benny Benjamin than you hear in the musicians that Cook chose to play with. And so what I think you hear is the difference in almost decades, you know, the decade of the 50s yeah. versus the decade of the 60s. When Cook is making that move to the pop world, his models for pop are, you know, Perry Como, Andy Williams, you know, and when you put him back in that context, you send me swings in a way that, you know, marks it as coming out of the black music tradition. You know, his vocal line is not something that Andy Williams could have ever sung or Perry Como could have ever sung. You know, they couldn't have done that. Um, Maybe Tony Bennett, you know, could have done it. But but at the time of you send me, no one else could combine, you know, the smoothness of a pop arrangement with the gospel inflections that was part of his, you know, heart and soul. Um, nobody else was doing that, and and that's really why he was successful. Um, and um, those sounds, the particular sounds that he was using to make his intervention, to make his own steps towards integration, those sounds in the post-rock world are coded as corny, coded as mm-hmm. old-fashioned, stuff like that. It's hard for people to hear the now the kind of powerful contribution that Cook made towards you know breaking down the walls of black and white America that he was doing well before change is going to come. Change is going to come as 
almost the culmination of his efforts, and certainly it is because he died sadly. Right. Yeah. You know, but but really he was doing that kind of work before then. You know, he was doing that kind of work in his pop stuff, and I think that we really need. You know, you know me. I mean, I like to talk about music and how the music works. I think we need more musicological, deeply historically informed musicological analyses of the world before rock became rock in order to really understand the contributions of musicians like Sam Cooke. Well, I think this is like uh, as good a point as any to, to stop, particularly because I'll be talking with other guests in a later episode about Motown, which you just okay. uh, right. nicely teased. <laughs> but um, I want to thank you so much again, Barry Shank, for coming on. Uh, again, Barry is professor of comparative studies at Ohio State University and the author most recently of The Political Force of Musical Beauty, which you can purchase on <laughs> Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, came out on Duke University Press in 2014. Uh, so thanks so much again, Barry. This was great. Hey, you're welcome, Jack. It was a complete pleasure for me. And, you know, I love it every time we have a chance to talk about music. So I'm looking forward to the next time. We're going to close out today's episode with a recording that sort of ties everything together with a bow. Um, This is a live performance of Blown in the Wind recorded by Sam Cooke from the tail end of a July 1964 show at the Copacabana nightclub in New York City. Um, This is a really striking recording because you can hear Cooke working in this very sort of suave and debonair nightclub style uh, and turning Dylan's folk song into this sort of gently swinging, upbeat nightclub number, essentially. times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned Oh, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer, blowing in the wind. I hope you'll tune in for episode two of this brand new Slate Academy series. We'll be delving into the subject of soul music, what it is, what it was, and who was and wasn't able to stake a claim to it. The great Emily Lordy will be my guest for that episode, and we'll be talking specifically about Aretha Franklin and Dusty Springfield. But if you're itching to continue today's conversation, head on over to our Facebook page. I'll be checking in there between now and episode two, and would love to hear your thoughts and questions about all of this. You'll find that page at facebook.com slash groups slash slatepop. I'm going to leave you with one more URL, and that's the one for our official show page. It's slate.com slash popacademy. There you'll find links to the songs we discussed today, as well as some of Barry's and my own writing on Dylan, Cook, and the greater musical context of the 1960s. Pop Race in the 60s is a production of Slate Plus. If you're not already a member, you can sign up for a free two-week trial on our show page. Again, that's slate.com slash popacademy. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get access to the rest of this series as well as to a ton of other exclusive podcast content. A big thanks goes out to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where we're taping this show. You can find out more about that terrific organization at virginiahumanities.org. Our producer is Tony Field, and Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Plus. I'm Jack Hamilton, and I'll be back with you soon with another episode of Pop Race in the 60s. Thanks so much for listening.